Anybody feel like jumping up and shouting during that song? Why didn't you? Thank you so much, Tangina. I invite you to open your Bibles to the first chapter of Revelation. The Word has gotten out in the community. This is my 13th summer at Garden City Chapel, so the Word's gotten out in the community that I actually preach through books of the Bible. Imagine that. I don't know what other preachers preach. I just I don't, I don't know any better than just preach the Bible. So uh, uh, I have been battling for a few years. The two books that I kind of thought would never be appropriate to teach or preach through at the chapel, one was the book of Romans, and I did that two or three summers ago. And the other was the book of Revelation because I recognize that it's a different group largely every week. And so I thought, you know, that doesn't make sense, God, and yet God has impressed on me that this year that's what I'm to teach through. I, I read a quote uh, by D.L. Moody that said, I preach every sermon knowing that it may be my last. And so if this is my last sermon, or if this is my last season to preach, this is what I need to preach. There's a blessing that comes just from reading the book of Revelation. Do you know that? We're going to talk about that in a minute. A lot of people are fascinated by prophecy. That's why when you drive between here and Florence, you'll pass by at least a dozen places that say something like spiritual advisor or seer or fortune teller, card reader. And yet, isn't it amazing that of all the predictions that have been made, apparently the Mayans were wrong, by the way. Did you know that? The world was supposed to end in December. Uh, as far as I can tell, it hasn't. For some of you, you may feel like it did, uh, but it hasn't. There have been predictions made. Walked out of a, a grocery store into a grocery store parking lot one time, and there was a card on my car for one of these fortune tellers. Wanted me to come by his or her place and have my fortune told, but they had marked through their phone number and written a new phone number. And I thought, well, you're not much of a fortune teller. You should have known your number was going to change, right? There's actually a book that was written called The World's Worst Predictions. I just want to share a few of them with you. King George II in 1773 said that American colonies had little stomach for revolution. An official of the White Star Line, speaking of the firm's newly built flagship, the Titanic, launched in 1912, declared that the ship was unsinkable. In 1939, the New York Times said there's a problem with television. People have to glue their eyes to a screen, and the average American just won't do it. An English astronomy professor said in the early 19th century that air travel at high speed would be impossible because passengers would suffocate. We have a hard time, don't we, predicting the future. We have a hard time knowing what's for lunch, for crying out loud, much less what's going to happen weeks from now, months from now or years from now. And yet we've been given this great book of Revelation. The first five books of the New Testament deal primarily with the past. They're primarily a story of the gospel. They're the story of the life of Christ and enacts the life of the first century church. The next 21 books deal primarily with the present. They're written to churches and Christians living in that day. Revelation certainly has a component of the past, a component of the present, but mostly, 
the book of Revelation is about the future. So let me read just the first few verses, and we're going to walk through this first chapter of the book of Revelation. In fact, let me set some ground rules. Number one, I'm not going to set dates, and I'm really not going to pick sides. I've already had some somebody ask me, you know, are you premillennial, postmillennial, amillennial, are you pre-trib, post-trib, mid-trib? And I said, you know what, I have, a, I have a view of those things. But you know what, we can walk through the book of Revelation and see what the Bible actually says that's plain without dealing with speculations. And I, I tell people, I'm a pan-millennialist. What does that mean? It means it's all going to pan out in the end. Because I promise you, if you've got it all figured out and put in a box, something is probably not quite right. In fact, I'll be real honest with you. I kind of grew up taking a little bit from this view, a little bit from this view, a little bit from this view, and my package was impossible when I really started studying some of the Old Testament prophecy and the New Testament prophecy. But understand how important prophecy is. For every verse in the Old Testament, every verse in the Bible that dealt with the first coming of Christ, there are eight verses in the Bible that deal with his second coming. So it's important. And you'll see a little more reason for why it's important in this first chapter. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his bondservants the things which must soon take place. And he sent and communicated it by his angel to his bondservant John, who testified to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy and heed the things which are written in it, for the time is near. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loved us and blessed us from our sin, excuse me, and released us from our sin by his blood. And he has made us to be a kingdom, priest to his God and Father. To him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. First thing I want you to see this morning is just the promise of blessing. In fact, the title of the book is Revelation. What does that mean? It means the cover's been taken off of something. Something has been revealed. Something that perhaps was concealed has been made known. And yet we approach almost this last book in the Bible as though it's something we don't even open. It's something we can't understand. And yet it is something that we can understand. And God wants us to understand it. Certainly there are symbols in Revelation. There are tricky things that you've just got to say, God, help me understand this. In fact, you're going to see the word like a lot in this passage, especially from verses 10 and following. Think about nine times the word like occurs. And John is simply saying, here's what I see. And the best way I can describe it is to tell you it's like this. So follow along with this. So it's the revelation of Jesus Christ that God gave. He gave it to John. He said these things must soon take place. They must. It's necessary for them to soon take place. And you think, well, wait a minute. If you're one who believes that a lot of the book of Revelation is still yet into the future, and I do, it's not soon, is it? Because it's been almost 2,000 years since Christ left. And 
been almost 2,000 years, 1,900 years since these words were written to these seven churches so that it could be distributed to the Christian world. What does it mean they must soon take place? Well, it means the word means quickly. So it could mean simply that it's going to happen soon or it could mean that once it starts happening, it's going to happen in a very short period of time. Either way, I can say with authority today that we are closer to the return of Christ today than we've ever been. But there's probably some of you that in our recent economic conditions, you're thinking, Jesus, come back now. We need to be rescued. And so we recognize that as this was given to John, it was given to him with this eye of expectancy, that we're to live our lives as though it's soon. And here comes the blessing. He said blessed. The word literally means fortunate or well off. And I want you to look at this word this way. You have received divine favor. When God says you're blessed. And there's three things that he says you're blessed. First, you're blessed if you read the book of Revelation. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand if you've read the book. But I want to give you some homework. I want to encourage you over this next week. Read through the book of Revelation. In fact, if you really have time, read it in more than one translation. Find a good translation to read it out of. or Perhaps read it out of more than one. So that you catch a grasp of what. The book of Revelation says, but God's promised that you're blessed. Divine favor rests on you if you read it. In fact, if you've got your copy of the book of Revelation, look over to the final chapter, chapter 22 of Revelation, and see the continuation of that theme. Verse 7 of chapter 22. I'll give you a moment. Always bugs me when the preacher like already knows where he's going, so he like introduces the scripture and then flips there real quick. This one's not going to be on the screen. But make a note of this. Verse 7 of chapter 22. Behold, I am coming quickly. Blessed is he who heeds the words of the prophecy of this book. And then continuing in chapter 22, verse 18. I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues which are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy... God will take away his part from the tree of life and from the, from the holy city, which are written about in this book. So there's a promise of both blessing and curse. First one is for those who read it. The second is for those who hear it. Okay? So you're thinking, well, all right, I'm already blessed because the pastor is going to read at least the first chapter today. And so I'm blessed by that. Let me tell you, implied or inherit in the word hear, it means obey. Have you ever had your mom or dad... <laughs> My mom used to do this to me. I guess you could tell I wasn't paying attention. Are you listening to me? You ever heard the phrase, in one ear and out the other? I don't know what my mom thought was in my head, but she thought some of the stuff could go in one ear and out the other. Kind of scared me. You know, my brother's shown a flashlight, and he said it was, he could see it on the other wall. There's nothing in there. Kind of, kind of scary. But literally, the Old Testament concept, especially of hearing, was not just that you assent to the fact that you heard some noise pass through your head. But you've not only read it, you've heard it. You've literally obeyed it. And then the third thing, he says, blessed are those who heed it. And that sounds a lot like obey, but I want you to hear a deeper meaning of what it really means. Literally, the word heed means to guard or to keep it. Some of your translations perhaps have the word keep it. And it literally means to guard from loss or injury by keeping your eye on it. So one of the things we need to do with the book of Revelation is we need to read it. We need to hear it, we need to obey it, 
In fact, there's going to be specific instructions given to these seven churches that are located in Asia Minor. We'll talk about in just a minute. But they were strategic churches because it wasn't just for them. This word would ultimately be disseminated to us. And so we need to obey what the word says, but we also ought to keep our eye on it, guard it. Why? Because the time is near. I love the word time here. Normally in the New Testament, the word time is the word chronos that we get like chronology from. And it really means kind of the time on your watch or the time on your clock. It doesn't use that word here. It's a different word. The word time here really means more season or epic or era. Era. It means it's near. You remember when Jesus spoke to his disciples and he said, these are the things that are going to be taking place. And when you see these things taking place, understand the time is at hand. In fact, when the disciples watched Jesus back in Acts chapter 1, he ascended into heaven. Remember this? It's described in John chapter 1. Jesus gives them their marching orders and basically says, hey, I'm going away. What you're to do is wait in Jerusalem until you receive power. You're going to be my witnesses in, Ju- in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the uttermost parts of the world. And then he lifted up and was received into a cloud. And the image I get is the disciples just kind of stood there. Well, he said he's coming back. I guess, I guess it'll be any minute. So what happens? The angel appears to him and says, what are you doing staring up in the sky? He, he gave you instructions. Get about doing what he told you to do. But keep this in mind. The same way you saw him go away, that's the way he's going to come back. And you'll see that imagery in the first chapter of Revelation. So John is to write to these seven churches. What's so important about these seven churches? The seven churches, literally, if you read each of these seven churches and look on a map, perhaps in your Bible you've got a map, you can find where some of these like Smyrna and uh, Thyatira and some of these places are. Literally, if you left the island of Patmos, that we'll talk about in a minute, and got over to the mainland, you would hit in a circular route each of these seven churches. And so he lists them in order. Apparently the messenger was going to take these books that John writes, these book of Revelation. He's going to take and leave one at the first church, the second church, the third church, And Jesus has a specific word for each one of those churches, but those churches were strategic because they were at at critical postal routes that from those churches, the word could easily spread. So it's not just a letter to a church that needed to be shut up that we don't get to hear about, but there are things and applications we can make from what he says to these seven churches. And he says, you're writing about the one who was, the one who is, the one who was, and the one to come. He talks about the seven spirits around the throne, and you think, okay, what what does that mean? Well, if you go back in the Old Testament, you see the Holy Spirit described with seven attributes. And when you see the word seven, quite often in the book of Revelation, it means fullness. It means completeness. I believe he's simply talking about the Holy Spirit. He's talked about God, the Father, the one who is, who was, and who is to come. He talks about the seven spirits, the Holy Spirit. Then he talks about Jesus. We're going to end this morning with just a real clear description from John about Jesus, the the image that he actually saw in Christ. He describes Jesus as the one firstborn from the dead. Does that mean that Jesus was the first and only one ever born from the dead? No, because there have been other people raised in the Old Testament, New Testament. In fact, Jesus raised some people from the dead. So it says he's the firstborn. It means first in preeminence, in priority. So that's the promise of the blessing. I've looked at my clock and realized we've got to move a little faster. So let's look at the promise of his return. The next couple of verses, let me just read these two, seven and eight. 
Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. So it is to be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is, who was, and who is to come, the Almighty. About 25 times in the book of Revelation, you're going to see this word, behold. It's an imperative. It means here, it means look. Look at what's about to happen. Something important is about to take place, and the very first thing that is about to take place is he's coming. He's coming with a cloud. In fact, often the cloud represented the presence of God. And it's hearkening back to the way we saw Jesus leave. Jesus left, was enveloped into a cloud. And what does the angel say to the disciples standing there? He said, listen, it's the same way he left. You're going to see him come back. You're going to see this image throughout the book of Revelation. When Jesus comes, he's coming with a cloud, and every eye will see him. There's a huge difference in the way Jesus came the first time and the way he's coming the second time. The first time Jesus came, he really came and was born in, fairly, in a fairly obscure village of Bethlehem, about six miles from Jerusalem. Not a lot of people knew it, not a lot of fanfare. In fact, who were the first people that the introduction even went to? They were some shepherds out on a hillside. He kind of came into obscurity and really born into poverty. But when he comes the second time, everybody's going to know it. Every eye will see it. He's coming back in power. We'll talk about that a little bit more. But every eye will see it. Even those who pierced him, those responsible for his death, even the tribes, literally the pagans, the ones who don't know Jesus are going to mourn when he returns. Why? Because they're going to realize that their entire life they've lived, they've been wrong. They haven't trusted Christ as their Lord and Savior. He's the Alpha and the Omega. Literally, simply just an alphabet lesson, and that is that the Alpha was the first letter in the Greek alphabet. The omega is the last letter in the Greek alphabet. He's the beginning and the end. He is God. But let's look at what John saw, the last thing, verses 9 and following. I, John, your brother, and fellow partaker in the tribulation and kingdom and perseverance which are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos. Because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and heard about me a loud voice like the sound of a trumpet saying, write in a book what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the middle of the lampstands, I saw one like a son of man, clothed in a robe, reaching to the feet, and girded across his chest was a golden sash. His head and his hair were white like wool, like snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze when it has been made to glow in a furnace. And his voice was like the sound of many waters. And in his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun, shining in its strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. And he placed his right hand on me, saying, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last, and the living one, and I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Therefore, write the things which you have seen, and the things which are, and the things which will take place after these things. As for the mystery of the seven stars which you saw on my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. 
John gives a little bit of a description of himself, and he says, basically, I, John, your brother, fellow partaker in the persecution and the perseverance. I mean, he could have said, I, John, who wrote the Gospel of John, who wrote 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, who, by the way, was a disciple of Jesus. I, John, saw these things. He, he simply calls himself a fellow brother with them. In fact, if you read the Gospel of John, John typically was so humble, he never refers to himself by name. He simply says, the disciple whom Jesus loved. Just the beloved disciple. But now in the book of Revelation, we see him named as John. And he says, I'm on this island of Patmos. This was a, a, an island that criminals would be sent to. John would have been on there with guards, making him work at hard labor his entire life. The island was about eight miles long, about four miles wide. It was about 40 miles off the coast. It was isolated. It was hard. He slept probably on a hard ground. Nothing about his life was easy. And oh, by the way, he was about 90 years old by the time he has this vision. By this time, the last disciple still alive and remaining is John. And John is in the Spirit on the Lord's Day. What does that mean? I think John was at worship. What day was it? It was the Lord's Day. What day is the Lord's Day? Sunday. Why do we call it the Lord's Day? Because it's the day that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. The Old Testament, they were instructed to worship on the Sabbath. But we see in the first century that Christians started gathering together on Sunday to commemorate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so whether John was with some other believers, maybe not. He may have just been by himself. But in this day of worship for him, the Spirit falls upon him. And he finds himself in the Spirit. And he has this vision. And at first, the voice he hears is coming from his back. He doesn't even see anything yet. Because he finally has to turn around and see. And what I really want to focus on are these attributes of what he sees. Seven quick things. But they all relate to description from the Old Testament of God. So John says... I hear this voice. It sounded like a trumpet. There's that word again. Was it a trumpet blast? No, but it sounded kind of like a trumpet. In fact, in uh, Exodus chapter 19, when God is about to speak and to deliver the Ten Commandments to Moses, the whole camp of the Israelites heard this sound. It sounded like a trumpet, and they kind of all fell out over that, fell back. And so John says, best way I can describe it is it, it's kind of sounded like a trumpet. You're going to hear trumpet mentioned more throughout uh, the book of Revelation. In fact, the word like is going to occur 65 times in the book of Revelation. So what's John doing? John is taking things he's seen that is probably unlike, and not probably, certainly unlike anything he's ever seen before. And he's describing it just by saying, well, it's kind of like this. Now, I don't know if you've ever had to do that. Uh, I've grown up in a generation where we had one telephone in our house, and it was connected to the wall, believe it or not. It was in the kitchen. And, and after a while, you finally realize we need a cord that can reach. You know, a, your mom would be sitting there on this phone, you know, on this long cord. And if you'd had a vision of a cell phone, and you were trying to describe that to your mom and say, Mom, you're not going to believe this. But there's going to be a day where you can be driving in your car, talking on the phone. What would your mother think? I'm going to have to have a long cord. How's that going to work? Or if you had ever seen a microwave before the 1970s or 1960s, you said, Mom, you're not going to believe this. But there's going to come a day where that oven over there, one day you're going to be able to open it up, pop something in, and in less than a minute it's going to be hot. She's going to go, you're crazy. 
And so John is seeing things that are going to take place in the future, and so he has to use this word like. It's unlike anything he knew, but he's describing it the best way that he can. And one of the amazing things I see in this passage is it says, write what you see. You know how hard that is? You can write what you hear. Some of you are taking notes even as I speak. You can kind of write what you hear, but you've heard a picture's worth a thousand words. Think about the instruction that he's been given. You're going to see things like you've never seen before, and you've got to write it down. Write what you see and disseminate it to the churches. It's going to be a book. In fact, it's, it, that word is used. You're going to write a book to these seven churches. And so John uses these descriptions. It says, I turn to see the voice. That's amazing. How do you see a voice? And yet John is saying, I realize I'm in the spirit here and God is speaking to me. And so I turned to see what was behind me. And here's what I saw. I saw seven golden lampstands. And I saw one standing in the middle of the seven golden lampstands like a son of man. That was Jesus' favorite description of himself. He called himself that in the Gospels. I'm the son of man. Well, who are these seven lampstands? We're going to get to that in a minute. But just so you get the picture, the lampstands are the churches. Now, do lampstands have light of themselves? No. What do you put on a lampstand? Well, in those days, they put an oil lamp. Okay? In our days, on a lampstand, you might put a candle or you might put an electric light bulb. But keep in mind, the lampstand does no good without the light. In fact, later in chapter 2, he says to one church, I'm going to come and remove your lampstand. Why? Because the light's gone out. But here's the neat thing. Jesus is walking right in the middle of the lampstands. What is he saying? Hey, I'm with you, church. I haven't abandoned you. I haven't left you orphaned. I'm right here with you. Well, let's close this morning with this description that John sees and describes. First thing, he tells us what he's wearing. He said he had a robe reaching to his feet. Why is that significant? Because only two groups of people wore robes that reached all the way to the feet. First was rich people, royalty. Or second the high priest. So he had a robe that reached all the way to his feet. That was remarkable enough to John that he wrote it down. Second thing is he has a sash, and this wasn't a belt that typically would be worn, but the high priest would wear a sash across his chest. And so he said he had this golden sash. Third thing is when he looked at his hair, now keep in mind he's describing Jesus, but he said his hair was white like wool. In fact, it was like snow. What's the significance of white hair? Well, in the Old Testament, that was the significance of the elders. That was the significance of wisdom. Now, I want to say, I'm not just talking to young people here, we've lost respect for white hair. For, for some of us, we cover it up with color. Or, especially for young people, you kind of look at it and you think, man, you are so out of touch. You know, your parents use words like, you know, I was twitting the other day, and you're like, that's not the word, you know. And we kind of we almost dismiss, folks, once you get old, you're kind of out of touch. Well, that's not the truth. We need to understand that the white hairs have some wisdom. Why? Because they've lived longer than we have. I'm 53 years old. This is my natural hair color. There's some white in it if you get close enough to me. The other day, I was eating at Donato's Pizza, and for the first time in my life, I looked at the receipt, and I got the senior citizen discount. I didn't know I was old enough for the senior citizen discount. I'm not going to argue with them because it saved me like three bucks. I did have a lady one time at Kroger. I, I happened to go in there on Tuesday. Or, 
you get the senior discount? I'm like, how old you got to be for that? She said, 60. I'm like, do I look 60? But folks, obviously what's being shown here is that Jesus with his white hair like snow, the sign of wisdom, the sign of experience. And then he describes his eyes, they're like flames of fire. And just in case some of you young people look at older folks that have white hair and think the light's about out there. No. George Jones died this week and one of his favorite sayings was, there may be snow on the roof, but there's still a fire in the fireplace. What is it describing about Jesus? Listen, don't look at him as somebody that's old and losing his strength. No, everything else is said about him shows the power. So it talks about these eyes, this gaze that could have burned to the very core of what he was looking at. And he's going to describe that over in chapters 2 and 3 when he starts talking about what's going on in the church. He says, hey, I'm, I'm seeing what's happening in your church. And I got some good things to say. I got some bad things to say. So his eyes were penetrating. His feet were like burnished bronze that had been made to glow in the furnace. What's the significance of feet? We see this in the culture of that day. When you were pronouncing judgment, judges would sit up on a platform or pedestal. The people they were judging would be beneath their feet. And I think simply what John saw was this incredible bronze feet on Jesus. The voice that sounded like many waters. It's a hard one to understand. If you go back to Ezekiel, just make a note, Ezekiel 43.2, same imagery is used of the voice of God like many waters. Now keep in mind, where was John when he got the vision? He was on an island. Island's about four miles wide at the widest part. You think maybe that John had heard pretty often this rush of the waves hitting against the rocks. And so he simply said, the voice sounded like what I hear every day. If you walk out here this afternoon, you're going to see waves hit up on the shore. It's not real loud. But you go a little bit further south where there's no beach, and at high tide, the waves hitting against the rocks, it's incredibly loud, and it's incredibly powerful. One of the things that happens when the waves do uh, leave the beach is they destroy things in their way. And so John says, the best way I can describe this voice I heard, it sounded like the voice of many waters, kind of like a waterfall. If you've heard the, the force of water coming over a waterfall. And in his right hand were seven stars. And out of his mouth came this sharp, two-edged sword. The sword that he was describing almost looked like a tongue, but it had edges on both sides. And it's reminiscent of Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, where it says, The word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. It's able to pierce to the division of joint and marrow. It's able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. See, the picture of Jesus is... Jesus, as he appears to John, is powerful. He has authority. He talks about the fact that he has the keys to death and the grave, to Hades. He has authority. I think the image of people in the first century was they saw him die on a cross. They saw the humility of Christ. Folks, that's over. He is now a reigning king, and when he returns, he's coming in power. The reason the Jews had a, such a hard time receiving him in the first century is they thought he was going to come on the white horse and take over in the first century. But how did he enter Jerusalem? On the back of what? A donkey. Humble. He died on a cross. And yet he has been risen from the dead. In fact, one of the things he says to John is, I'm the one who died, but I am now alive. 
I heard on the radio about a week ago, somebody was talking about the current political climate in our country, and they said, you know, I wonder what Jesus would say if he were alive today. And I thought, he is alive today. <laughs> it's not, I wonder if he was, he is alive. And here's the good news. He's coming again. Well, folks, a lot to cover in one brief meeting. But here's how Jesus ends the first chapter. He says, as for the mystery, and the word mystery does not mean something mysterious. It simply means this. This is something that man can't figure out on their own. He said, as for the stars, they're the angels or the messengers to the church. And as for the lampstands, those are the churches. You're going to see this imagery occur again in chapters 2 and 3 and elsewhere in the book of Revelation. Well, here comes the so what. As I approach this passage this week, one of the things I prayed is, God, I don't want the study of Revelation just to be about history, even the neat imagery, and, and we kind of walk out of here and say, well, that's cool. Here's my question. How's that going to impact your life tomorrow and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday and for the rest of the week? Well, I'll go back to what I really introduced to you at the very beginning. That is this. First of all, there's a blessing to study the book of Revelation. So read it, hear it, heed it. The second thing is, live your life like Jesus could come back tomorrow or today. Are you ready for the return of Christ? If he were to return today, would you say, praise the Lord, or would you say, oops, I'm not ready? You ever had somebody just drop by your house unexpected, unannounced? You're thinking, you know, I would have cleaned up. If I'd known you were coming, I'd have baked the cake. Well, listen. You know Jesus is coming, and he's not going to tell us the day or the hour, but we should be aware of the season. Folks, I just believe the day's approaching. And the last thing to live your life this week is this. Jesus is alive. Certainly he's returning in glory one day, but he's alive today. We truly serve a risen Savior. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you for the truth of your word. God, thank you that revelation is truly something revealed. It's not concealed. And God, forgive us for times we kind of look at it as something that we don't even need to read. But God, we recognize the promise of blessing when we do. And so, Father, would you bless us even this week with divine favor because of our study of the book of Revelation. We thank you in Jesus' name.